The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. It was time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So glad that you are with us this morning. If you have your Bible, grab it, and we're going to be in John chapter 2. John 2 this morning as we get started. It's great to be back with you. Uh, Kim and I were out for a couple of weeks uh, celebrating a milestone birthday for her, celebrating our 26th wedding anniversary, and so it's really great to get the chance to be back with you this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate that. We had a fantastic time away, So, but really good to be back and to dive in with you this morning. And here's a question I want to start with. It's a question that I think is really important for the spiritual life, that we think about this question, we really ponder this. Here's the question. What makes you furious? Right? What, what, what makes you furious? I, I don't know if any of you, like me, had an opportunity to get good and mad this past week. I, uh, I was in some circumstances that sort of took me back to, to uh, I think, what was a wrong done to one of my kids, and I just was mad. And, uh, and it's worth paying attention to this question, what makes you furious? And this is, of course, one of those no elbow questions, right? If the source of your fury happens to be sitting next to you this morning. But, it, but it's a really important thing for us to think about. What makes you mad, right? What makes you furious? And, and here's part of why that question is so important. Because what makes you furious oftentimes reveals what you love, right? The the, the things that make you really angry oftentimes reflect what you really care about, what you value most deeply. And if, if I'm really being honest with you, I have to acknowledge that when I do this introspective work, what makes me mad? What does my fury reveal about what I love? It oftentimes reveals that what I most deeply care about is me. Now, here's an interesting question. What made Jesus furious? We're going to look at a story this morning where we see the fury of Jesus on display. And and let's just acknowledge that, that fury is not something that we oftentimes associate with Jesus, right? We tend to think of Jesus as calm and, and compassionate, a, a non-anxious presence, that, that Jesus is that gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And yet this story that we're going to look at this morning, we see the fury of Jesus on display. So we need to ask the question, what made Jesus furious? Because in answering that question, we see what he loves. We see what he cares most deeply 
about. We're in the middle of a sermon series called The Story of Life. That over the course of this year as a church, we're really kind of following the big, the, the big broad story of the Bible. We started with a sermon series called The Story of God, where we looked at an overview of the biblical story in eight weeks. Then we did, during the season of Lent, the story of us, using Israel's story as a mirror in which to see ourselves. And now we're in this Easter season talking about the story of life, the the pinnacle of the big biblical story in the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this series, we're talking about the idea that Jesus doesn't only come to bring us the gift of life, eternal life that we receive by grace through faith, but he actually comes to show us the way to live. He shows us what the kind of life that God wants to form in us looks like. So often when we talk about the good news of Jesus, it tends to focus on two things, his death and ours, right? Do you know if you died tonight that you'd go to be with Jesus? And that's a really important question, but, but there's another question. What if you don't? Do you have something to live for? Do you know how to live? And so we're talking about the ways in which God through the Holy Spirit is forming in us the life of Jesus. God's agenda for you and me, if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation is to make us more and more like the one who has saved us. And so each of these weeks, we're looking at different um, patterns in the life of Jesus. Jesus, the boundary breaker, that he came into a world that was filled with culturally and religiously imposed boundaries. And yet because of his compassion, Jesus is constantly crossing over those boundaries to get to people. Jesus, the boundary breaker, Jesus, the shalom maker, that Jesus moved toward the mess and that he brought peace and healing. Jesus, the people keeper, that for Jesus, it wasn't ultimately about keeping a set of religious rules. It was ultimately about keeping people who are made in the image of God. Last week, Sissy talked about Jesus, the rule follower. And if you didn't hear the message, it's not what you think. It's about Jesus living by a rule of life, a set of of patterns and, and habits and rhythms that form life with God. This week, we're talking about Jesus, the table flipper. We're going to be talking about the furious love of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to do what I've done throughout this series, which is take a couple of different stories that are oftentimes treated separately, independently. And oftentimes there's a message from each of these. And I want to show the way in which the gospel writer actually puts these stories together. And when you see the stories, not as two separate things with two separate messages, but actually the way in which they're woven together, we see that underneath the surface, there's a deeper message for us to find. And so to do that, I want to tell these two stories out of John chapter two. We might call the first scene, Jesus, the party animal, because this is Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana. And then the second scene, Jesus, the table flipper. And to ask, what does Jesus, the party animal have to do with Jesus, the table flipper? Let's look at it together. Scene one. And I want to begin scene one actually at the end of the scene, because John tells us something at the end of this little story that puts an important perspective on what's going on here. John chapter two, verse 11, John writes this. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John says that this miracle that Jesus does at Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine, is more than merely a miracle. A miracle would be to take one substance, water, and change it into another, wine, demonstrating Jesus' miraculous power. And certainly that's going on here. But John says there's more to this story than merely 
a miracle. More to this story than merely Jesus' power to turn one thing into another. John says this is a sign. And a sign is something that points to something bigger than itself. And so as we look at this story play out, we need to be watching for in what ways is this a sign. Look with me, beginning of verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I I want us to think about this story right here at the beginning of John's gospel. And to to think about it in terms of even just a, a, a rather ridiculous hypothetical. right? If you were the incarnate son of God... Come to bring the kingdom of God to this world. Right? Rather ridiculous hypothetical. But, but if this was you, where would you inaugurate your ministry? Where, where would you start your ministry? Because how you start says a lot about what your ministry is all about. Would you start among the, the rich and the powerful, right? The, the power brokers of society? Would you start it with the poor, the, the down and out? those in most desperate need. It's really interesting to note that Jesus begins his ministry at a party. He begins his ministry at a wedding feast. And to get the story, you have to understand that in the first century world, a wedding was a really big deal. These were people who who eke out a living by the sweat of their brow. They worked from sunup to sundown to just barely get by. They don't get opportunities to take the kind of vacation and, and get away from it all like I've just come back from. Like These are people who, who work really hard. But that means that when it came time to party, they also partied really hard. And the way in which they partied hard was through a wedding feast. A wedding in those days could last up to a week long. And this was a great occasion for celebration. And there was this sort of reciprocity built into the way they did weddings. Everybody was expected to bring a gift. You bring a gift and that gift helps this young couple get started in their life together. But you bring a gift and what you get in return is the party. And so there was this understanding that, that if I do my part, you got to do your part. And that's why this is such a desperate situation when the, when the wine runs out. Wine throughout the Bible is a symbol of joy and fellowship. In fact, one ancient rabbi said, without wine, there is no joy. Um, This young couple finds themselves in this moment where they are completely and totally exposed, where they they find themselves deeply shamed in an honor-shame culture. What was supposed to be their greatest moment of their lives has now turned into disaster, one of the worst moments in their lives. Because they have failed to live up to their end of the deal. The wine has run out. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says, they're out of wine. Now notice the way that Jesus replies, verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not come, not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, now the, the, Jesus' response to his mom here is, it's not, it's not um, derogatory, it's not mean, but it is pretty pointed. It's fairly curt. Woman, why do you involve me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. 
And if you read carefully the rest of the book of John, what you find is this little word for hour shows up multiple times throughout the remainder of the book. And every time there is a reference to Jesus' hour, it is a reference to the time of his passion. It's a reference to the time of his suffering. It's a reference to the cross. Now, what on earth might Jesus be doing thinking about the cross at this wedding party? You know, it occurs to me that sometimes this happens at weddings. Um, that uh, I remember for Kim and I, one of our very first dates was actually to the wedding of some mutual friends. And so this was 26 years ago. This was before we got married, but it was that day that was the first day that I thought, maybe this is the one. Maybe not too far in the future, there's a wedding for us. And of course, when you start to think of, when you're at somebody else's wedding, you start thinking about your own wedding. You think about how it'll be different and what will mine be like. Right? The wedding that we attended that day, it was a beautiful wedding, but it was the singingest wedding I've ever been to. I mean, the, the bride at one point sang to the, to the groom, the groom at one point sang to the bride, the, um, the, uh, um, what do they call the wedding party marched in and the, 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 the women all turned and they had microphones. They sang a quartet to us. I mean, it was just the singingest wedding that I've ever seen. And I'm sitting here with this girl that I've started dating thinking maybe, just maybe, she's the one and, and starting to think, what? What might ours be like? And I wonder, I, I, I just wonder if maybe that's kind of what's going on with Jesus. You see, the Bible talks about this great banquet that is to come. The wedding feast of the lamb. That, that one day all God's people will be assembled for a great banquet. But Jesus knows between this day and that day is his hour. That the only way that he can secure the hope of that great banquet that is to come is to endure the cross. It is to endure his moment of passion and suffering. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then I just love Mary. She turns to the servant and she says, look, just do whatever he says. Which, by the way, is just good life advice in general, right? Whatever Jesus says, just do whatever he says. But she knows that if it, there's anything to, that's going to happen, Jesus is the one that's going to make it happen. This, this young couple, there, there's part of this that's just a beautiful picture of the gospel. This young couple is in a desperate situation from which they cannot save themselves. If there's anything to be done, Jesus is going to have to do it. So Mary says, just do whatever he says. Let's pick up from there, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. If you're taking notes, here's a sermon all in itself. To be like Jesus, bring the best wine to the party. (laughs) But but part of where this story really gets interesting is in the math. And and that's not something that I ever thought I would say because I'm not a math guy. 
Then I became a senior pastor. I, I became a pastor not to have to do math, and they started giving me spreadsheets and budgets and all this, right? Um, but, but the math is fascinating here. Because if we, for the sake of the math, assume a four-ounce pour per glass of wine, then what you have is a four-ounce pour of glass of wine is equal to 32 glasses of wine per gallon. Now, 30-gallon jars, so if each of these is filled to the brim, that means 180 gallons of water turned into wine. That means Jesus makes 5,760 glasses of wine for people that have already been partying for a while. (laughs) What in the world is going on here? Well, here's the thing. Remember, this is not just a miracle. This is not just a demonstration of Jesus' power to turn one thing into another thing. This is a sign that points to something bigger than itself. Jesus makes not just an abundance of wine. Jesus makes a super abundance of wine. And if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the prophets, as they anticipate the day when the Lord returns to his people and sets this world right, one of the ways in which they, they picture that coming day That day when the Lord returns to his people and sets the world right, they use a picture and the picture that they use persistently is this picture of a superabundance of wine. Just just one example of this from the book of Joel, Joel chapter three, verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. The hills will flow with milk and the ravines of Judah will run with water, right? A a, a superabundance of wine. What Jesus does here at Cana of Galilee is to say, it's happening. It's beginning now. Jesus has come to begin God's work of setting the world right. But there's something also interesting to note about what Jesus uses uses to make this superabundance of wine. John says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. You see, wine in that day at a party like this would have been poured out of bottles called amphorae, a a clay jar that gets small at the end so they can um, be uh, held together in these wooden racks. And so presumably, if this party's been going for a while and all the wine is gone, presumably somewhere there are a bunch of amphorae that are laying around. But Jesus doesn't say, go get the amphorae and fill them with water. He says, those jars over there, the ones that are used for ceremonial washing, fill those up with water. Marshall McLuhan has a famous little aphorism, the medium is the message. And in this story, that's part of what's going on. The the medium, these jars are part of the message. These jars are powerful symbols in the first century world of who's clean and who's unclean. They're powerful symbols of who's in and who's out, who's included and who's excluded. And Jesus takes these powerful symbols of inclusion and exclusion, these symbols of who's in and who's out, and he turns them into symbols of joy and fellowship, that everybody is invited to the party who wants to come, that Jesus has come to begin the work of of God to, to set this world right and he's come to bring this radically inclusive kingdom that anybody can come to the party that wants to come simply by trusting in who he is and what he's come to do that's scene one now John puts right on the heels of that scene this next scene 
Jesus, the party animal, scene one. Now Jesus, the table flipper. Look with me in verse 11. After this, right, after the events that he's just described, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So here is the furious love of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple courts. What's happening? Well, we get an important clue, an orientation to what's happening when John tells us that it was about time for the Passover. In the first century, the the city of Jerusalem had a population of between 20 and 30,000 people who lived there. But during the Passover, pilgrims would come from from all over. They'd come from far and wide and and descend on the city for the great um, feast of Passover. The, the population of the city would swell by as, as much as up to 150,000 additional people. Now think about it. 150,000 people come to town for the Passover and all of them need a sacrifice. If the population of humans increases by 150,000, right? How many more sheep do you need in town for that many people? If the city swelled by the thousands, the the sheep swelled by at least hundreds, if not thousands. And all of this chaos now is descending here on the temple courts. In addition to that, you have these money changers. People would come from a long distance bringing their money. And oftentimes they didn't bring their sheep with them. Because the whole idea of the sacrificial lamb had to be without blemish. If you're coming from 100 miles away and you bring your unblemished lamb, there's a good chance that over the course of that 100 miles, your lamb's gonna get a blemish. So you save up your money to be able to buy a lamb when you get to Jerusalem. But you've got your local currency, and you need to exchange it. And so people would come into the temple to exchange money to buy a sacrificial lamb. And what was happening is they were being taken advantage of. They were being exploited in the temple. By charging an exorbitant exchange rate because they're desperate to be able to buy their lamb for the sacrifice. And Jesus comes in and sees all this happening and he is furious. But there's another aspect of this that we cannot miss if we're going to get this story. And that comes through actually in Mark's account of Jesus cleansing the temple in Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, we read this. The Jews, oops, that's not the right one. I'll go back to my notes over here. Um, let's see. Here we go. Mark 11, verse 17. As he, was, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. What Jesus does here is he puts together two Old Testament quotations, one from Isaiah 56 and one from Jeremiah 7. Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? 
Isaiah 56 is this beautiful declaration of God's love for the nations. God's heart, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. That that God's reason for choosing and blessing the Jewish people was so that they might be a light to all nations. Isaiah 56 declares God's great love for every tribe, nation, people, language, tongue, and race. God's heart for the nations. And the thing is, is that the temple, the largest section of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. That's where the nations were supposed to be able to come to be near the presence of God and to worship him. And guess where all that chaos and all that commerce, all that exploitation is happening? In the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is furious because they've missed the heart of God for the nations. When we speak about the heart of God for the nations, it seems an appropriate place for me to pause and address the, uh, the racially and ethnically motivated violence that we've seen in this country in the last couple of weeks and even here in our community. That we, as followers of Jesus, should grieve with those who are mourning. That we should grieve with those who, because of these circumstances, find themselves prone to fear Anxiety, pain, and uh, a deep sense of grief. May we as God's people grieve with those who grieve. Mutually support one another and stand together in solidarity. And as followers of Jesus, we should condemn the horrific violence that we've seen. And the horrific ideology that gave rise to it. But the condemning part is the easy part. It's easy for us to make declarations of condemnation for the things that we've seen, for for acts of white supremacist terrorism, for ethnically motivated violence. The condemnation is the easy part. The call of God on his people is that we would do more than merely condemn. At Irving Bible Church, we have always sought to live by the simple adage that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And don't get me wrong, there's some darkness that deserves some cursing. But we want to be people who do more than merely curse the darkness. We want to be people who light a candle. We want to be people who bring light into this dark world. That we want to be people as followers of Jesus who pray that God would deliver this country from uh, racial and ethnic animosity and injustice, prejudice, That God would rid this nation of the scourge of white supremacy. And that God would heal this nation from the wounds of its past and its present. And then we should be those who dedicate ourselves not just to praying, but to, but to, to dedicate ourselves to being used by God as the means through which he brings those prayers to realization in our world. That yes, we condemn these horrific things that we've seen. But we don't just curse the darkness. We bring light into the mix of it. And this is what we see in this story of Jesus, the table flipper. Jesus' furious love shows us his heart for the excluded and the exploited. That here we see Jesus' love for those who've been mistreated and dealt with unjustly. And that should be instruction and inspiration for us as his followers. 
That in the furious love of Jesus, we see his heart for the excluded and the exploited. That in the furious love of Jesus, we see his desire for his people to be characterized by the fruit of love and justice. That's what you see in the second quotation. When he quotes Jeremiah 7, the context of Jeremiah 7 is God bringing judgment on the religious rulers because they have all this religious activity, but they have failed to bear the fruit of love and justice. This makes Jesus furious. The furious love of Jesus shows us his heart for the excluded and the exploited. The furious love of Jesus shows his desire for his people to be characterized by the fruit of love and justice. So, so do you see it? Do you see the connection between scene one and scene two? Do you see the connection between Jesus, the party animal, and Jesus, the table flipper? That Jesus has come to begin God's work of setting the world right. That he's come to bring the kingdom of God, this radically inclusive kingdom where everybody's invited to the party who wants to come. And those who have entered into that radically inclusive kingdom are to be those who share the heart of Jesus for the excluded and the exploited. Who take up the cause actively of the excluded and the exploited. Whose lives are characterized by the fruit of love and justice. Now, when we come to the very end of this scene of Jesus in the temple, we see the religious rulers, the religious authorities come to Jesus and question him. And and they respond to him, verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? But the temple that he referred to, John tells us, is his own body. That Jesus himself is now the place where the very presence of God dwells. That that Jesus himself is the place where heaven and earth collide and overlap and interlock. Jesus is the temple. And he says, tear down this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. Jesus knows that this great kingdom that he's come to bring, this kingdom that he's come to secure, this great hope for the great wedding feast that is to come is only made possible because of his suffering, because of his death. That that, that it's only possible because Jesus enduring his hour, the cross and the resurrection. And it's because of his cross and resurrection that anybody who wants to come to the party is invited in by grace through faith. And it's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that then we who are his followers seek to live his life in this world. Seek to share his heart for the excluded and the exploited. And seek to live lives that bear the fruit of love and justice. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.